Uh, he probably taught me this stuff before. <laughs> Antiochus IV, also called Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, Antiochus Epimenes was his nickname, which means the madman. Uh, this guy was terrible. He hated the Jews. He put, he put Greek statues in the temple. He slaughtered a pig on the altar of the temple. Uh, needless to say, he was terrible to God's people. And, and Antiochus was this hero. And I'm sorry, not Antiochus. Judas was this hero that delivered God's people from this tyranny. And if you're familiar with the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah, Judas Maccabeus is the reason that they celebrate that because there was a miracle that took place where, the, where the, uh, the menorah was lit for longer than it should have been. Now, this happened around 160 B.C., and I believe that the strength, the bravery, uh, the absolute fearlessness of Judas in the face of the tyrants and his lack of or his lack of hesitation when it came to physically attacking the enemies of the Jews is part of the reason that the Jews rejected Jesus. This was the kind of deliverer they wanted. They wanted a political deliverer. They wanted someone who would who would dash the Romans, who would put them down, who would humiliate them, and they wanted someone who would restore them to the glory days of King Solomon. That's what they were always waiting for, somebody who would who'd bring them back to the days of Solomon. Sadly, they did not understand that the real threat to their peace, the real threat to their prosperity, was not an evil ruler like Antiochus. The real threat is the enemy in here. You can overthrow those enemies over and over again, but the sin will still remain. The unwillingness to turn to God still remains. A strong rebel can overthrow external dictators, but it takes a different natured deliverer to overthrow this internal dictator that we all struggle with. In order for us to be delivered from sin, We need more than someone who is brave. We need more than someone who is strong, more than someone who hates injustice. We need someone who is personal, someone who's patient, someone who knows where you struggle, someone who knows where you need aid. Judas' name was uh, Maccabeus, meant, does anybody know what his name means? It means hammer. He was the hammer. He was the type of deliverer who came in and broke your enemies to pieces. But the zeal of a rebel is not able to cure sin. It's not able to turn the hearts of God's people back to him. That requires a different type of deliverer. It requires a physician. It requires a shepherd. It even requires a counselor. How good of a counselor do you think Judas was? Probably not. It requires one who stays by your side throughout your struggles, one who knows your personal weaknesses, one who knows your strengths, and one who custom makes a deliverance just for you personally. 
And the strength of man can never deliver us. We must have Jesus. Now, Jesus is all the things that Judas was. He's powerful. He crushes your enemies. But he's also humble. He's also lowly. He's gentle when he needs to be. He's kind to you when he needs to be. He treats the hard-hearted Pharisee different than he treats the woman at the well. He approaches her differently. And just like her, he knows you personally. He knows how to destroy everything that is in your path that might hinder your deliverance. And we're going to get a glimpse of this personal touch of Jesus from John chapter 1 as we see Jesus begin to call his first disciples. So if you will, look at this passage with me, beginning in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Beginning in verse 35, we see again John the Baptist, and he's standing there with his two disciples. Now we learn later in the text, that one of the disciples is is Andrew, the brother of of Simon Peter. And many people believe the other disciple who's not named, now who's the person who's who's usually not named in the Gospel of John? It's usually John, yeah, yeah. So 
We don't know that, but it's very likely that John the Apostle is the other disciple who's mentioned here. And Jesus passes by John the Baptist, and John the Baptist urges his disciples once again. He's already said this, but he's saying it again to his disciples. Behold, there goes the Lamb of God. And these two disciples, they, they leave John, and they follow Jesus. And there's a couple of real simple things about evangelism that I think we can learn from John the Baptist here. Now, we, we talked about this. I know it's been a long time since I preached my last sermon on this. Talked about this a little bit last time, about how John the Baptist does not make the gospel about himself. He preaches the gospel. He doesn't try to accumulate John followers. His purpose is to be an instrument, a sign saying, that's the Messiah, not me. Follow him, not me. So that's a, that's a good thing for all of us to practice as we share the gospel. And second, John didn't just proclaim the message. He took time to build a relationship with these people. He spent time with them. They got to know him personally. And they, they learned that John cared about them, not just cared about signing up members for some kind of following. John cared about them, and that relationship made them hear the gospel that, that John presented to them. Now, there's nothing wrong with sharing the gospel with strangers. I'm not saying don't do that. Uh, if you like going door to door, if you want to stand out on the streets of, of Morganton with a bullhorn and preach the gospel, that's fine. Uh, but I do know that it seems more effective for you to share the gospel with people that you live life around because they know you. They're just, they're just more likely to hear it from you than somebody who is a complete stranger. And because of the relational trust that John established with these, these disciples, they didn't second-guess anything. They followed Jesus. And as these two disciples follow Jesus, he turns to them and he asks them, what are you seeking? I think this is a good question for all of us to maybe meditate on. I won't take a whole lot of time to do this, but, you know, just think about when you're following Jesus, what are you seeking? Seeking salvation? It's a good thing to seek. Seeking healing from Jesus? There's people who sought Jesus for healing. That's not a bad thing to seek. You're seeking wisdom. Maybe you want to learn how to navigate this life with wisdom from Jesus. Or maybe you want Jesus to help you with things like contentment. Those are all good things that we seek when we seek Jesus. But I think the answer that the disciples give here to Jesus is at the heart of what we may not even know, but what all those who truly seek Jesus long for. And here's what they say. They say, where are you staying? Now, you're probably thinking, yeah, that's really profound. Where are you staying? They want to see Jesus' house. Think Jesus even had a house? They want to see Jesus' shack, maybe. I doubt Jesus had a shack. He probably had a, a place on, in the woods somewhere and a mat that he slept on. I think what's going on here 
is these disciples didn't really care about seeing where Jesus lived. They just wanted his presence. They wanted to be with him. And the reason that the hour is mentioned there, and the hour is like about 4 o'clock, and, you know, for some of us that's late, for some of us it's not. Uh, probably late for me. But that hour shows that they were starting to be with Jesus during the evening hours, and they were going to spend the night with him, and that's the time of hospitality. That's the time of fellowship and hospitality. And they just wanted personal time with Jesus. And isn't that what we all really want? All the other things that we're seeking are, are things that come with being around Jesus, but we just want to be with him, just want to be in his presence. We need more than, than a hammer like Judas who comes in and crushes our enemies and might move on to the next conquest. We need a savior who actually likes us. That might be strange. We talk about a lot about how Jesus loves us, but it'd be good for us to actually believe that Jesus likes us and he wants to be around us. We need a savior who wants to prepare us for things, to prepare us for the valleys of life, who's going to tell us not platitudes, everything's going to be okay, I'm going to heal all your sicknesses, I'm going to make your life easy. But the one thing that we need to hear, no matter how bad things get, there's one thing that won't change. My presence. I will be with you through every bit of it. And we can learn a lot from Jesus here. We can, this is a passage where we might need to ask ourselves, how can I be like Jesus here? It's good for us to be mindful about, am I present in my relationships, and as an introvert, I need to hear this. Am I present in people's lives? Are we present as parents? Are we present with the people who are hurting? Are we present mostly with those that we know who need to hear the gospel? If we're not present, then they're not hearing the gospel. Personal presence is a powerful tool for gospel ministry, but Jesus does more than being present. And this brings us to our second point. Jesus shows us that he's not just there for us, but while he's there, he's doing something. And the thing he's doing is he is personally influencing you. And he's doing it personally for you. And I know you might not think you need this, but he's personally influencing you for the better. So you, I know none of you believe you need to be better. But Jesus is there to make you better. Beginning in verse 40, John says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, which we all know means Rock, thank you. I knew Ken would answer that for me. Thank you. That's right, yeah. (laughs) Jesus' personal influence on Andrew gave him a desire to go to those he already had a personal relationship with and say, we have found the Messiah. 
And the first thing that Jesus does is something kind of strange when he comes, encounters Peter. What's he do? He comes face to face with him. You ever had somebody come up to you and just say, hey, Frank, your name is now John. Uh, that's what Jesus does here. He changes his name. So we have to ask, because Jesus always does something for a reason, why does Jesus do this? Why is this his first action? Well, I believe it's recorded here by John to teach us all a lesson in the first encounter that Jesus has with Peter. Now, Simon is not a bad name. It just means he who hears. Now, that sounds like Peter's character, right? He's always listening, never speaking. Those of you who know Peter know that's not true. Yeah. <clears throat> well, Jesus changes his name. I don't think because Simon was a bad name, but he wants to show his followers that when Jesus comes into your life, there is now not peace, but a war between Simon and Peter. There's an old part of you, and there's a new part of you. Before Jesus comes into our lives, we're content, but the contentment is not healthy. It's an unhealthy peace that we have with our fallen nature. It's kind of like, this is, this is a very silly illustration, so just hold on. It's kind of like being a chain smoker who's at great peace, loving their smoking, and has no idea that lung cancer is in their future. So they're, they're content, they're at peace while they're in self-destruction. But when you follow Jesus, who does Jesus unite you to when you start following him? Somebody said it, the Holy Spirit. So you're united to Christ through the Holy Spirit. There's a new you, the Peter part of you. And this would be like the chain smoker being handcuffed to Vivek Murthy. Does anybody know who Vivek Murthy is? I'll be shocked if anybody knows who this is. This is your current Surgeon General. So any of you who are old enough to have had parents or maybe smoked yourself know that on every carton of cigarettes, there's a Surgeon General's warning that you should not be doing this. And so just imagine the chain smoker who's handcuffed to the guy whose job it is to rid the world of smoking. That is not going to be peace for either one of them. And that is a crude example of our, of our new war between the two natures. Jesus wanted Peter and us to understand that there's a sense in which we are still Simon, but because of his personal influence, he's turning us into Peter, the rock. And we should be thankful. We should all be thankful that this is the first thing that Jesus does because we know how Peter's going to be after this. We know that he's not going to act like a rock. And we all need this encouragement. We all need the encouragement that Jesus sees us as who he's making us to be, even at the beginning, before he started doing anything in us. Paul does this in his letters to the churches, too. Think of Corinth. Corinth is a church that was really pure and perfect. No, not really. They had all kinds of problems. But the first thing Paul says to them is, you guys are saints, you're beloved, you're in Christ, you are precious to God. 
He wants them to know that that's how God sees them before he says, now you need to straighten this up and this up and this up. And you need to hear this from Jesus. You need to know that Jesus knows your sins. He knows your failures. He knows those idols that are tucked deep inside your heart. And he knows that his influence is going to overcome those idols. Do you struggle with anger? Don't raise your hand here. Anybody here, you can raise your hand in your heart. Anybody here struggle with anger? Just imagine, you know, that morning you had just gotten mad at somebody and then Jesus walks up to you and says, your name is now Peace Lover. If you struggle with fear, Jesus comes up to you and says, your name is now Courageous, Brave, Confident. Now, we all struggle with this one, pride. We all struggle with some form of pride. But Jesus might walk up to you and say, your name now is humility, meekness, one who puts others first. That's how Jesus sees you. You see, Jesus' personal influence isn't about what you are in your sin. He wants you to focus on what he's making you, what he's turning you into. And as we see in the life of Simon Peter, and I know all of you have experienced this in your life as well, it doesn't happen like that, does it? And aren't we thankful we have Peter to show us that? Now, when Jesus rebuked Peter, does anybody know what he would call him when he rebuked him? Called him Simon. Can you see Peter going, stop calling me that? He probably would cringe every time Jesus said, Simon. So he's showing Peter that that nature's still there. He doesn't need to ignore it. Peter was often reckless. He was often stubborn. He often spoke and said things that he was going to do that we all know he, would, he wouldn't do. And we're all familiar with Peter's denial. Think about this. Jesus is standing feet away from Peter as he's at a fire, warming himself. And Jesus can hear him say, I never knew the man. Denying Christ in front of everyone. And then Peter's eyes catch the eyes of Jesus. And he goes out devastated, and weeps. Jesus, even in that moment, saw through all the mire of Simon and saw the rock because he knew that's what his work was going to create in Peter. Jesus' confidence wasn't in who Peter was as Simon, but Jesus was confident in the work he was going to do in his death and his resurrection. And Peter, after the resurrection, was Peter still perfect? No. And we shouldn't think we're going to be perfect ever either in this life. But Peter did, in some ways, become that rock. He, was, he preached the gospel mightily on the day of Pentecost. He was used and stood up to the Pharisees and said, we are going to obey God instead of you, even if you imprison us, even if you kill us. 
That was not Simon. That was Peter. Now, we know Peter's failings in the book of Galatians where he kind of backpedaled on justification. But if Jesus can forgive him for that, so can we. Now, Jesus returns and recommissions Peter at the end of the book of John. And Jesus knew that Peter wasn't perfect. And Jesus knows that you're not perfect. He knows you have failures, but just like Peter, he can see through those things and he can see what he's going to make you out to be. John chapter 2 says that Jesus knows what's in the heart of a man. How does that make you feel? Does that excite you to know that Jesus knows everything in your heart that I don't know about you and that you don't know about me? Well, Jesus knows all that about you, and he still delivers you in spite of that. And that brings us to our next point that we do not need to hide ourselves from Jesus because he knows us intimately. And because of that, he knows how to change us. And we see that in the calling of Nathanael. So starting in verse 43, John says, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming forward or coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So after the encounter with Peter, the next day Jesus finds a new disciple, and this disciple is Philip. And Philip is very much like Andrew. He's he's driven to go out and find a friend that he knows personally and tell them that we have found the guy. We have found the one that... All of the Old Testament law and the prophets have been saying is coming. We found the Messiah. And what is Nathaniel's response? Yippee! What's his response? What in Nazareth? Talk about Jesus of, of Nazareth? Yeah, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, Nathaniel doesn't know what we know because he didn't have the book of Matthew. He doesn't know that Jesus is from Nazareth, but where was he born? In Bethlehem. And there is a prophecy in Micah that speaks about the Messiah coming from Bethlehem. And we know how God worked out all of the providence to make sure that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This interaction is not given to us to make us think, oh, Nathaniel is a prototype of Thomas, like he's some kind of doubter. But it actually should impress us of how consistent Nathaniel wanted to be with his understanding of Scripture. He knew the Scriptures of the Old Testament, and he knew that the Messiah wasn't supposed to be from uh, Nazareth. Now, the thing I love about Philip is, does Philip try to argue with him and get his apologetics book out? 
you know, and say, how can I defend? No, he says, come and see for yourself. He was confident that if Philip came face to face with Jesus and saw him and met him and was in his presence, that he would know that this is the Messiah. And so Jesus sees Nathanael coming, and he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael may have questioned whether Jesus was the Messiah, but he did it with a heart that wasn't deceived. He did it with a heart that was seeking truth. There was no deceit in his heart. He was just truly seeking what the scriptures told him to look for in the Messiah. Now, I think we're presented with this too because later on, there are going to be Israelites in whom there is a lot of deceit. They are going to see Jesus do all kinds of things and prove with no doubt whatsoever that this guy is the fulfillment of the scriptures and they will not care. They don't care. I mean, they see Jesus heal blind men. They know that he raises people from the dead. They hear his teaching. They're in his presence. And the only thing they can think is, this guy's a threat to our power. We need to get rid of him. Those are Israelites who have hearts full of deceit. And Jesus will tell them later on that they are not Israelites. They are not children of Abraham. But the man standing here in front of him, Nathaniel, he is a true Israelite. The funny thing here is that Jesus is actually doing a play on names again here in this, in this passage. Israel, do we all know who in the Old Testament received the name Israel? Jacob. And does anybody know what Jacob's name meant? Heel catcher, but what does it mean? What does the heel catcher mean? It means he's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. And uh, Israel was given this name in his wrestling match with God, and, and he was given this, I believe, the same reason Peter was given his name, to show that there's still an old Jacob and there's now a new Israel. Two natures that are wrestling in the heart of Jacob. Now, I don't think that Jesus means by this that Nathaniel is perfect and he has no old nature whatsoever. But like in the case of Peter, Jesus is identifying Nathaniel not with his sin nature, but with the nature that Christ is forming in him. And Christ wants us to know this as well. This is part of Jesus' personal touch. He knows who you are as a sinner. Now, he doesn't want you to ignore that part of you or pretend like it doesn't exist or stop fighting against it. But he wants to encourage you that when you act in accordance with your sin nature, that should not cause you to despair because your sin cannot blot out the image of Christ that's being formed in you. And that should give you hope. Now, Nathaniel's response to this is that he asked Jesus, how do you know me? And Jesus' response is, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree, and I saw you. Now, there's, if you want, if you really want to dig into something that you probably don't care about, you could read lots of books about what in the world was Philip 
or Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? Some people think he was doing something bad and it embarrassed him and that caused him to to, uh, believe in Christ, but I tend to believe that he was probably doing something spiritual, like praying or fasting, because the fig tree in the Old Testament uh, represents the blessing to God's people. And it was a place that, that they thought of as a place where they were blessed. And they would pray and do spiritual activity uh, around fig trees. <clears throat> but whatever he was doing, Jesus saw it and he knew it. And this was enough evidence for Nathaniel to embrace him as the Messiah. So in this passage, we see that we have a personal Savior who wants to be present with us, who wants to influence us, and who wants to do all these these things even though he knows everything that's in here. He still wants to be near you. Now I want to conclude with the, the response of Jesus to Nathaniel, verse 50. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here Jesus tells Nathanael, you believe because I saw you before Philip called you. You've seen nothing. That's nothing compared to what you're going to see. Nathaniel, you are going to see heaven opened up. Richard Phillips, he's a pastor in South Carolina, also writes a lot of commentaries. He says, it is said that seeing is believing, but Jesus asserts that believing also leads to seeing. Nathaniel believed because he had been touched by the personal, intimate knowledge that his Savior had of him. And Jesus says, because of this belief, you're going to see a lot more, so much more. But what is this thing that Jesus is talking about? Angels climbing up, angels climbing down, the Son of Man. Sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Well, once again, this is a story of Jacob. When Jacob was was fleeing from Esau, he had this dream, he had this vision, and in in the dream, he saw a ladder that went from the earth all the way up into the heavens. And he saw angels coming down that ladder and going up that ladder. And in this dream, God tells Jacob that in your offspring... All of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, have we heard that promise before? It's the promise of Abraham. So so Jacob is receiving the promise that was given to his father Abraham in this vision. The disciples were going to see heaven come down. Because Jesus here is saying that ladder that Jacob saw, it's not really a ladder, it's me. I am the one who is going to do the work necessary to bridge heaven and earth and reunite man to God. And it's only through me 
only through the Son of Man. And, and the disciples got to see bits and pieces of this as they saw Jesus turn water into wine. They saw Jesus raise the dead, heal the blind, make the lame to walk again, and especially in his death and resurrection. They saw heaven come down. In John 20, John tells us that he wrote these things about Jesus so that you might believe and that by believing you might have eternal life in his name. You and I don't get to witness the physical presence of Jesus. We don't get to hear the audible teaching of Jesus. We don't get to see Jesus heal the blind or raise the dead. But we don't have to. Jesus knows us intimately, whether we have physically seen him or not. His personal presence and his personal influence is with us through the work of his word and spirit working together in us. And this is why John wrote. He wrote this book. And because we have this book, we know that Jesus has died for us and he's done the work for us to bridge us back as the, the ladder of Jacob back to God. Jesus took the shame for you. He took the pain for you. He took all that stuff that you personally deserved. Jesus' probably worst moment is when the Father turned away from him and forsook him. You know who deserved that? Not Jesus. We, every one of us deserved that, except for Jesus. And he took that personally for you so that that will never happen to you. The Father will never turn from you because your personal Savior took that forsaking for you. And Jesus tells us that if we follow him, we will ultimately see what he sees in us. Not the conquered sin nature of Jacob, but the lovely image of Christ, the true Israelite. Christ is the true Israelite, and he is our personal savior. So if you've made excuses to not follow Jesus, we all might have them. Things like, I'm too bad. Think Jesus doesn't know that? Think Jesus doesn't know how bad you are? Jesus can't understand my problems. He created you. He knows what's in the heart of a man. Jesus can't overcome my desire for sin. Think Peter and Jacob didn't have an overwhelming desire for sin? John says, read my gospel and believe the thing that Jesus knows about himself that he is a personal savior who can turn any Jacob into a true Israelite. Amen.